Relax. Relax. Get ready to have fun. Because you've got a date with somebody special. The walking, crawling nightmares from the pits of hell. You may think you're normal, but you're all the products of... Your ancestors, our ancestors, were freaks. Enter a world of the twisted and deformed. A world of monsters and madmen. Aren't you going to have a drink with us to help celebrate Kathy's birthday? You expect me to sit down with a bunch of freaks? He's one of us. We are He's one of us. Yes, our brother. Sarah! Our loving father. Two million years for man to evolve, and only 24 hours to create the mutations. It's not nice to fool with Mother Nature. It can be horrifying. The mutations. Crawling nightmares from the pits of hell. Today's episode of the Plants Are People 2 podcast is brought to you by Corey Hart and the Society for Shady Ophthalmology. Are you 25 to 45? 
do passing motorists who may not even have on their high beams see you psychotically screaming into your windshield for them to turn off their effing high beams? Has driving at night really pushed you past your ophthalmological limit into a geriatric state of pure curmudgeonry and you don't know what to do? Are you pissed off at your neighbor Keith who just got a 750,000 lumen light bar installed on his Jeep and on his way home every night, blasts it into your house, lighting your living room up like a supernova jack-o'-lantern? Well, if any of these are true for you, call the Society for Shady Ophthalmology today and we'll send you a free gift of your life-canceling sunglasses for night driving, plus a few nails to throw out in front of Keith's Jeep. 1-800-544-7688. That's 1-800-LIGHTS-OUT. F. Keith. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Plants for People 2 podcast. We're going to talk about Japanese barberry today, common barberry, a hybrid between the two, uh, poor agricultural practices from the government in the past, the barberry family in general. Yeah, just some crazy crazy shit that happened um, with this plant and the United States government. Um, but first, let's just talk about the family. The Berberidaceae family um, has three genera that we'll talk about in New England. Berberis, which Barberry falls into. Um, Potophyllum, and or may apple um i think it's a extremely rare or threatened species in vermont and probably new england in general uh and the other one is colophyllum or the blue cohosh so We'll talk about the other two first, and then we'll get into Barbary, because there's a lot of other things that are related to that that are kind of cool. But um, if you look at the flowers of these, six petals, uh, Potophyllum has really big, they're probably called palmate leaves, um, and the flowers kind of droop down, they're white with the yellow center. Uh, they droop down and um, I think the, the roots were probably used for some medicinal purpose at some point. I don't generally see them in the wild, not only because they're rare, but because a lot of them are planted. Um, it was a horticultural plant that was planted a lot. So I have seen them in places, but they're around somebody's house, and I generally think that they are planted or... Um, they're not a native wild population of that genus. The other one is Colophyllum, and that's there's Thalactroides and Gigantia. Um, so one of them is uh, they're it, I've seen them both out in the wild, but they're a little hard to tell apart unless they're flowering, which they flower very early in the spring. They're one of the spring ephemerals. And Gigantia has darker purple, almost brown, reddish brown mahogany. Um, 
colored flowers and it flowers slightly earlier. I think I read it was about a week earlier than Dalectroides, which has um, yellow green flowers and the number of flowers that appear in each head, um, each inflorescence is an indicator. There's an, a little bit of an overlap there. Um, but so Gigantium is uncommon in Vermont, rare in Massachusetts, New Hampshire. Flowers are 10 to 15 days earlier than Thalactroides. Um, the ID characteristics for that are flowers in Gigantium, flowers before leaves, and there's 4 to 18 flowers per inflorescence. Purple to brown, sepals, which are different than petals. 6 to 9 millimeters long versus Thalactroides with flowers appearing um, with the leaves, so at the same time, numbering 5 to 70 per inflorescence, and white to yellow sepals, 3 to 6 millimeters long. So, you know, it seems like if you knew that, you could go out there and, and look at them and tell pretty uh, easily which one is which. And if you have the uncommon one, Gigantium in Vermont, that's on your own property, that's really cool. And if they're mixed together, that's, you know, that habitat is pretty interesting. Um, back to the May apple, it's extremely rare in Vermont. Um, and we're probably at, we're at the northern limit of its distribution here in the eastern United States. So, those are two members of the same family, the Berberdaceae, that Berberus is in, which is the barberry. And the, we know the barberry plant today as being an invasive. And there's, um, the two are uh, Berberus vulgaris, which is the common barberry, and um, Berberus thunbergii, which is the Japanese barberry, um, from slightly different areas. But the common barberry was introduced first into the U.S., and it was brought here by colonists for, they use it for dye. It has a very yellow, bright yellow uh, inner bark. And so they strip that off and then they would probably make some sort of concoction with it and dye clothing. Berries were used for jam and also the purpose of like hedgerows for probably keeping in livestock of some kind. Um, and so, the <coughs> excuse me. That, uh, that plant was brought here because they wanted to use it for these different things. And they soon realized that they were also the big um, product or, you know, um, plant that farmers would, were frequently farming was grain products. And so they found out that their grain was getting infected by a, uh, it's called cereal stem rust, or there's another name for it, black stem rust. And the life cycle of this uh, fungus is to, it needs the berberis 
plant specifically and more uh, it likes the common barberry more than the Japanese barberry and so the life cycle of this fungus is to um, live half of its life on the barberry plant and then it goes from the barberry plant to the cereal crops the grain crops and infects them and, and reduces the harvest makes it worthless and so in the uh, like 18th century so early 1900s um, it was brought here in the 1600s but in the early 1900s uh, there was a lot of states, I think it was like 13 or 15 states, that uh, restricted the planting of common barberry. And there were massive eradication efforts that were put into place between 1918 and 1942. So just after World War I. Um, the stat was 310 million plants uh, were taken out of the ground. And I found a bunch of um, <laughs> crazy, like, they're almost like propaganda, but it's just so interesting to see it in relation. It's like domestic propaganda to get rid of these plants. And it's interesting what they say in some of them. I'll, uh, I posted them on Instagram, and so you can read through some of them because they're old cartoons with plants in them, and and just the way they portray all this stuff is really funny. This one says, "Help! If you saw an anarchist with a blazing torch in his hand sneaking through the grass to your ripe wheat field, intending to set it on fire, what would you do? If you saw several of his companions in crime sneaking into your granary with oil and matches, what would you do?" If you saw a mob of wild-eyed anarchists running amok with firebrands and destructive intent, what would you do? You would shoot the first. You would shoot first. You would shoot as many of the small group as you could, and you would call for help to exterminate the whole breed. The common barberry is a red-handed anarchist bush. It has a long career of crime behind it. It has a longer and more terrible career of crime before it, if we don't put a stop to it. It has destroyed billions. Um, let's see what else is here. This is a Barbary. So there was a little pamphlet that was handed out called Destroy the Common Barbary by E.C. Stackman, pathologist, agent, Office of Serial, Serial Investigation, C-E-R-E-L, formerly in charge of the Barbary Eradication Campaign. Um, there's a picture of a, an old guy on it with a shovel pulling up a Barbary. It says the proper way to remove barberry bushes, dig deep enough to get all the roots. It was from the Farmer's Bulletin, uh, number 1058, United States Department of Agriculture, and uh, contribution from the Bureau of Plant Industry, May 1919. And so that was handed out. The table of contents is loss caused by the common barberry, kill the barberry now, the Barbary Dangerous, wherever it is, the common Barbary and outlaw, how Denmark prevented rust epidemics, the evidence against the Barbary conclusive, don't let the common Barbary run wild, dig the bushes by the roots, the Japanese Barbary harmless, how to distinguish the two kinds of Barbary and help. So the interesting thing in this for me was that 
the Japanese Barbary harmless. And when you start looking at these, they, it's cool that they were putting out these flyers that have basically taxonomic um, pictures on them that show you how to distinguish the Japanese Barbary from the common Barbary. And in a lot of them, they just say, like this one says, save Japanese Barbary, kill common Barbary. And it has the two, the two taxonomic differences there. Um, Japanese Barbary, very much like a <clears throat> knee-high to the forest floor ground plant, sort of grows like blobs, you know, amorphous shapes, lots of stems coming out of the, the base of the root mass. The common Barbary, much taller. Uh, I've seen them over my head, eight, nine feet tall, and also a lot of stems coming out of the base. The leaves are a lot bigger. Um, they have the number of thorns. On the common Barbary, there's three spines underneath a leaf that's much bigger than the Japanese Barbary leaf. And it also has a um, serrate margin. So on the leaf margin, you'll see little teeth all along it. And on the Japanese Barbary, there's one little spine that comes out underneath the leaf. And the leaves are almost, you know, maybe a little bit bigger than the size of a thumbnail. And they're, they're fairly skinny. And um, they're entire, which means that the, the leaf margin is smooth. There is a, a hybrid between these two. Uh, it's called Ottawaensis, I believe. Let me just look that up real quick. Ottawaensis, and that's O-T-T-A-W-E-N-S-I-S. -S. Actually, on the cover art for the Instagram post for this podcast, uh, for this episode, I put up... <coughs> um, the picture of the the Ottawaensis plant that I found in oh shit I don't remember where that was somewhere up in Rutland County, <clears throat> but the it struck my eye because the, the it was flowering blooming way more flowers than I've ever seen on any uh, common barberry or Japanese barberry for that matter although Japanese barberry probably flowers more so that trait probably just based on the numbers of fruit that I see on barberry plants in the woods. Um, I don't get to see, they probably don't, flowers don't last for that long. <clears throat> um, but this thing was just flowering everywhere and they were gorgeous. They were big, really pretty. And I, I thought it was a, a common barberry, but when I looked at pictures afterwards, I couldn't find the, the jagged margin on the leaf that the common barberry should have had. So I started digging into it and there's a, there's a hybrid that occurs between the two species. But so <laughs> they were, there were these real large scale campaigns. Um, also amazing is the, the learning that went on during this time, just about plants in general. And you know, having these flyers posted all over the place and 
you know, the effort to actually get rid of these things to save this crop. But the added downfall of um, them putting in that, like they didn't have to put in that the Japanese Barbary was anything. They didn't, they didn't have to say, save the Japanese Barbary. Um, they could have just left that out and they could have just gotten rid of the common Barbary. And instead what they did was they were doing all this effort, but then kind of like, you know, putting, bring something else in or encouraging people to bring something else in that wasn't going to be ecologically beneficial for the environment in North America. And what you see now is I, I do see common barberry in hotspots. There will be, if there is a common barberry, there's probably more of them around. Sometimes they're very, a very small part of a total invasive plant population on a, on a particular property. They're kind of mixed in. And when I started reading all this stuff about this campaign to destroy them and get rid of them, that, that made sense. I, I thought you don't often see common Barbary just taking over a whole understory like you would see with burning bush or um, glossy buckthorn. It was a plant here or there. But Barberry, the Japanese Barberry, is, uh, you will walk in and you can see acres and acres and acres and acres and acres of it. And you can't really even tell where individual plants are. It's just the whole understory of um, the hardwood stand or wherever you're at, the, that habitat is just completely taken over. And it has to partially be due to this program that went on for a long time. It's 30, 30 years. That's uh, an insane amount of time to be promoting Japanese barberry as a safe, unneeded alternative to common barberry. That the Japanese barberry, Thunbergii, was documented in the U.S. in 1818 um, or 1875 via Arnold Arboretum. So that's your local Harvard University bringing in invasive plants. Uh, seeds were distributed from there for cultivation, promoted as a substitute for common barberry. Most Japanese barberry plants were resistant to cereal or black stem rust. So that's that human need that takes over the ecological need. And those are, I hope that they don't do things like this now, but there are so many documented cases of different things like this where Department of Agriculture, um, governments, people have thought that something was good, universities thought that something was good, brought it in and sort of just distributed it unknowingly and it has caused immense problems. The Japanese Barbary changes soil chemistry, which is bad for native plants because they've evolved with that soil type and without that soil type the habitat is threatened. Uh, Japanese Barbary dominates the understory in some places 
seeds. It has one plant would have 1,500 seeds. And the good thing is, the quote-unquote good, if you have to pick a good thing, uh, they're mostly gravity dispersed. But turkeys, which New England has seen a drastic increase in the number of turkeys uh, in the past hundred years, previously they weren't around at all, so they wouldn't, wouldn't have been taking... They were here originally, hunted out, gone for a really long time, and now they've come back and they're they're sort of um, experiencing a boom right now. There's multiple days in a month where I'll see a mass of turkeys crossing the road somewhere, like twenty or thirty birds. Turkeys and grouse eat them uh, when there's no other food around. So those berries will stay on the plants for, you know, probably up and up through the late fall. And they're probably eaten out of uh, extreme, out of an extreme to have something to eat by those birds. You know, a long winter would probably cause that to happen. And so that's, uh, you have more dispersal with the more ingestion of uh, the Japanese barberry seeds. And the other big thing with barberry is the number of ticks that occur in those habitats because of the barberry. And what the barberry does is it sort of creates a little humidity barrier, uh, you know, in the, on the forest floor, ticks like a lot of moisture and they have uh, two nymphing cycles, and so the barberries create this little microenvironment, microclimate that they uh, exist in really well. And the other thing is the the barberry makes it really hard for birds of prey, owls, raptors, hawks, stuff like that, to see the mice that are on the forest floor and, and prey on them. So a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that deer ticks have something to do with deer and it's not deer. It's the, here, I'll, I'll read the exact life cycle for you. Okay. So in the spring, there's uh, exit hatch. These nymphs come out, larvae, they attach to a mouse or a bird, have a blood meal. From the summer into the fall, they turn into adults. And then they overwinter. <clears throat> and then in the spring, they lay their eggs again. So the, the highest, you know, I tend to see ticks out in the field um, in the spring and the fall. The Lyme disease connection here is the Lyme disease is carried by the white-footed mouse and the larvae that feed on the white-footed mouse are again, you know, from the summer when their eggs hatched and they fed on that mouse, got the blood meal, turned into adults, and now they could bite a deer or a fox or a human, unless that tick 
has fed on the mouse as a as its first blood meal and picked up the um, Lyme disease, the spirochetes, and then passes it to you. Uh, that's how they get it. The deer don't. The deer aren't the reservoir for um, Lyme disease. It's it's the mouse, and the mouse acts as the vector um, to get that Lyme disease into us. And so Barberry, if you, whenever I see Barberry and I walk through the woods, I try to avoid it and not walk through it as much as I can. Sometimes it's very hard. And I have had, I have reached down after walking through a Barberry patch and pulled off handfuls of ticks off of my gaiters. I, I usually protect the bottom of my plants by pants by wearing gators um it just prevents the the insect from getting uh or sorry the tick from getting up underneath my pants and then getting onto my skin and you know i'm tick checking myself every day when i get home or right after i get out of the woods and i'm not around uh vegetation that's that's sort of all over the place and touching my pants in different places but I have, I've never had Lyme disease. Uh, I have been bitten by ticks fairly frequently, but they're never in there for very long. I usually get them right as they start to bite me. And it's sort of, uh, it feels like a burning, it feels almost feels like a bruise. Like I'm getting, I'm starting to get a bruise and I'll, and I'll just reach around and feel and there'll be one there and I'll just pull it off. And in the fall and the spring, they are the tiny black ones and you know, chances are those things have probably fed on a mouse somewhere. And, you know, I'm trying to get that off me before it has a chance to pass that uh, disease into my system. The, so if you have that protection of the Japanese barbary on your forest floor and the mice aren't getting preyed upon by birds of prey, owls, hawks and stuff, the likelihood, you know, statistics, if there's more mice, there's probably going to be more Lyme disease in that reservoir. And if the mice with a lot of ticks on them aren't getting eaten by the birds, then there's going to be more ticks with more Lyme disease, more chances of humans getting Lyme disease. And, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, invasive plants, especially that one, have you know if we were if you had that on your property and you were worried about ticks and Lyme disease that would be the getting rid of that plant would be a really good first step to starting to solve that problem there's also you know just like Euonymus the burning bush there's a, a native one in North Carolina uh, glossy buckthorn, the frangula, they have a native counterpart, Caroliniensis, in North Carolina. Celastris orbiculatus, the invasive oriental bittersweet, has a native counterpart, uncommon in Vermont. Um, Scandens, that's Celastris scandens. 
what else is there? There's a native frag, Phragmites, I think it's called Americanus. The invasive one is Australis. So we have um, native counterparts for all these sort of invasives. Honeysuckle has a, Lanicer's honeysuckle that has a native counterpart here. And Barbary has one too, although it doesn't occur in our area. I think the highest it comes up is uh, into like Pennsylvania, and maybe that, that Pennsylvania one might be a um, introduced species, but they do occur down in like the southern Bible Belt area, and that one, Canadensis, is Mississippi, Alabama, west of Missouri. Um, another one that possibly you know, even though we were posting flyers and, you know, taxonomically very good for the public to be looking at that and being able to use that to identify common barberry to get rid of it, they look fairly similar. And the native one, uh, Berberus canadensis, and so they we're probably taking some of those out of the ground as well. And there's so many bad things about this program that, I don't know, I just, I kind of wish it never happened. And it was the, the grain production need and people being worried about that, that caused this thing to, to, take over as much as it did but the I don't know I mean it, people are going to be pissed but it might have just been better just to like let a bunch of people die and I don't know in my mind we're not the most important things out there and just the with the, the encouraging of Japanese barbary planting uh the destruction of this native Berberus and then the future destruction of, you know, by the encouragement of that Japanese Barbary, the future destruction of a bunch of wetlands and habitat that was occupied by numerous other native plants. It's, I mean, talk about shooting yourself in the foot. Um, and that, that, Berberus canadensis is listed as a G3 plant. So in, in New England, we sort of have this S ranking system and worldwide they do it with a G uh, and it's listed as vulnerable worldwide. So that's really interesting that, you know, the government has done this in the past. If, if you know, if we sort of knew what we know now and we weren't encouraging the introduction of other plants to substitute for something they've been able to encourage and get people to do ecological work i mean we we need a lot of ecological work right now everywhere and you know programs like the civilian conservation corps something like that 
getting people out there to restore habitats to not and not with any human agenda behind it to truly just be restoring habitats for the habitat's sake and just letting it be you know in its natural environment then that would be a great a great thing to do for instead of just us talking about it all the time we're we're talking a lot about carbon emissions and climate change and all of these things but like it's it's all through the lens of for us we're really only concerned about humans in this <laughs> in this like what is it going to do for us later uh we're not going to have air to breathe or we're not going to have water to drink or we're not going to have water at all and things like florida which the the florida everglades is they filled in like a third of that wetland to put in whatever fucking cities are down there that nobody gives a shit about but they think about all the habitat they just destroyed by just like plowing everything in and then building concrete on top of it uh because it was a pretty place to live or they they wanted they wanted to build in a swamp and these other places out in california that are houses built on in fire dependent habitats that like just because we're there nature's not going to say oh i'm not going to get light myself on fire right now and then we've gone and made it worse by preventing fires and putting them out as soon as they start that now the the amount of wood and fuel in the understory for those fires is hugely uh, out of whack with what it used to be and they burn hotter, longer, faster and then you have people's houses in the way that you know it's a great it's devastating to have your house burned down I'm sure but that place was never meant to be inhabitable probably because we want to live there we make it inhabitable and now it's backfiring on us we just i don't know this this whole thing with the the barbary and you know people not really thinking about what's just putting themselves in front of nature and ecology and you know what's i don't know our priorities are messed up as as a group and we really need to to look at that and decide you know do we really need florida to be <laughs> do we really need florida and everyone that's there i don't know um we could just turn it back into a wetland just pull all that stuff out I don't know if that's possible or not, but um, it might be a good start to start thinking about that and see see where that goes instead of um, our egocentric approach to all of this stuff that's that's going on. So ask yourself today, what can I do for plants? And see what you come up with.
A little grow update on the cannabis. We're at, I don't know what day we're at. It's gotta be like day 40 or something. Um, I have repotted them once. So I, I started them in a, like a four by four pot. And now I've, what I do is I take a gallon pot and I put the empty or the, I put the plant in its current container inside that pot with a little soil on the bottom, pack in the edges. And so, and then I take that potted plant out. And what happens is you get a perfect slot of where to take out your, um, take out your plant and you know the edges are all defined just like that little rectangle or square and you can slide it right into your new gallon pot and there's no root disturbance um it's very low stress for the plant to do it that way and so i have done that and they have they usually respond very quickly i have a lot of side branches on one of my plant coming up one of the plants coming up and so what i'll do is when I get three, four, five nodes. So uh, nodes are where you have the, the leaves coming out of the plant. The cannabis is interesting. It starts out opposite and then all of its leaves are opposite. And then when it starts flowering, it's, it goes into flower, it changes to alternate branching, um, which is kind of a cool I don't know if you haven't noticed that before and you're growing some cannabis, check it out when, when they go into flower. But so I'll wait until the plant is sort of established. Since I just repotted them, I usually wait a week or two before I'll do any other stressful things, even though that was pretty minorly stressful for that plant. I'll just let it put its roots into its new area and get established. And then after those you know, three, four, five nodes are there. I'll just pinch off the top one. And so right now you can see where the plant is, you know, if it's about a foot high. And so I have at the first two nodes, I have a bunch of side branches coming out. So I've got really like five tops on that thing right now. And when I take, when I pinch off the, or cut off the leader, the apical meristem where all the cell division is happening, it changes the hormones in the plant, tells the plant to, you know, basically the plant is thinking, uh, who's, who's in charge here, who's in charge here, and starts putting energy into those other side branches down below. And you see it a lot. Uh, if you see, look at cannabis pics on Instagram or just Google it, you'll notice that there's different methods of that. You can do something called scrogging, which is like sea of green. They do a lot of trimming and bending over the branches, which causes more bud heads. And so instead of having a tree, having a, a plant like a Christmas tree, you're going to have a plant that's going to be more like a flat on top. Hi, Cece. Hi. You want to go on? And so all of the energy will go into multiple bud heads as opposed to one big nugget and a bunch of small ones. You'll have, there's a, a threshold limit on how much topping you can do and how many bud heads actually make sense. Because at some point you will, 
there's a reduced return on the amount of buttheads out there and how much because the energy is always going somewhere else but if you trim it and you have like plan on having 10 tops that's a, a good number um eventually i will pot up from a gallon to probably a three gallon pot and maybe a five or a 10 gallon pot depending on how much space i have i have uh the next episode, episode six, is going to be with uh, Nathan Buchanan, Wild Bud Natives um, Conservation Nursery down in Marshall, North Carolina. He and I, I, I got to see him uh, visit his property this past fall, and we went out in the woods, looked at some cool plants. Um, so we'll be talking to him a little bit about his business and some different things that he's done out there in some pretty cool places and explore penstemons possibly. We'll probably talk a little bit about some invasive plants, um, some differences between species that we see that I see in New England versus what I saw down there and maybe some thoughts on why those things are different or how they're different so look forward to that i hope you guys are enjoying the podcast I'm, I'm enjoying doing it it's been a lot of fun i feel like i spend like two or three hours <laughs> just doing the intro and then you know it's an hour of me sort of freeform rambling but like there's there's notes there, um, but trying to keep it. F I am for uh, an upcoming episode. I'm not gonna tell you which one. We're gonna look at some really cool. Uh, one of them is called Lycodium. It's a, a climbing fern. Has palmate leaves on it. Uh, very cute. I've seen it down in Massachusetts. And there are, it was recently refound in Vermont, which would be cool to take a look at. Um, that and plants and thermogenesis, which is plants that create heat within themselves, which is a, a very interesting trait. And some really cool dispersal methods for a particular plant that I'm hoping to go out to the field to find hunt it down and uh yeah we'll do like a field recording i haven't done that yet so we'll take take the microphone out into the woods and see if we can find that plant and get some new sounds and it'll be uh be a cool little adventure so cc's in here coughing again please see so i hope you guys are enjoying your weekend and yeah, we'll, uh, we'll touch base again soon. Take it easy. If you made it this far, this is a bonus part of the episode. Um, I just wanted to explain, or, you know what, fuck that. I'm pissed about people, people driving, I don't know if it's, if it's me getting old or what, but headlights at night bother me so badly that I feel like the people 
who are driving oncoming uh, in the left-hand lane, like, I don't know if it's, if it's light bulbs have just changed or people are, I have no idea. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's my problem and I have to figure it out and I just have to suck it up and accept that there's new light technology in today's world that drives me fucking insane. I don't understand. I can't tell. Most of the time I'm getting blinded and I can't see the road. I have 20-20 vision as far as I know. Um, maybe my night vision is is not as good as it used to be, but I feel like driving at night is mostly just keeping it between the yellow and the white and not being able to see what's coming up, plus having some asshole with, you know, a 750,000 lumen light bar just, like, coming at you down the road, blasting you so you can't see anything. Feel free to reach out if you want to help me stop people who drive with their their headlights. You know what? This is what I just need to not drive at night ever. That's what I'm going to do. I'm never going to drive at night. Bye.